0: last Sunday we were wrapped up in talking about the uh, parable of the prodigal son of course it was as you recall three parables the lost sheep the lost coin and the prodigal son and it was directed primarily at the Pharisees who had no compassion for the lost and that was the primary lesson is that the lost are important to the God that we serve the God of heaven and therefore it should be uh, important to us as well should point out one thing that we didn't get to about that last week, and that is that, of course, the lost sheep, a literal sheep, the shepherd just goes and gets it and brings it back. The sheep doesn't have a lot of say in that. Same thing with the coin, but when the son was uh, left, the father, then it required repentance for him to come back. So that was a point that really needed to be made there as well, to restore that uh, the wayward soul requires repentance uh, upon their part. There's some more to say about that, but uh, we'll deal with that a little bit later in today's lesson. Now, we're one complete lesson behind the schedule. We should be on lesson three and we're on lesson two. We probably won't catch up today, but hopefully in the next week or two, we'll, we'll uh, try to get it back on schedule. <clears throat> we'll be talking about our effort, our work in the kingdom, about how we deal with our uh, riches and blessings, about stumbling blocks, about forgiveness, about humility, about gratitude, and then a little look into the, to the future. So those are the things in today's lesson. Luke chapter 16, beginning of verse 1. Uh, remember again, as we left the parable of the prodigal son, Jesus was directing his comments primarily to the Pharisees, although all the things that he taught is for us as well, right? That's, that's why we study it, because <clears throat> all of those lessons are, are for us as well. But here in uh, Luke chapter 16, now he, he he turns from the Pharisees to his own disciples, and he tells another parable. And it's about, uh, there's a uh, a master who has a servant, A steward, the New American Standard, uses the word a manager. As I understand it, it would be similar to what uh, Joseph was in Potiphar's house. Potiphar had other work to do, and so he had Joseph to handle the affairs of the household. And this steward or this manager, that that was his job to manage the household. And he says that he was squandering his his, uh, master's possessions. Now, we're all stewards, right? We're all stewards. Everything that we have, whether it be physical possessions or or talents and abilities, they're all gifts from God, and we're to be good stewards of all of those blessings. In the First Corinthians chapter four, verses one and two, it tells us uh, it is required of stewards that one be found trustworthy. In Galatians. Uh, 6 and verse 5, it says we must uh, everyone must bear his own load It's kind of interesting there in Galatians 6 and verse 2. He he had just said we need to bear one another's burdens Okay, in verse 5. He said you got to bear your own load. So there's a difference there We can help bear someone else's burdens But the load he's talking about in verse 5 is our own responsibilities. It's like the parable of the talents Uh, Whatever talents I have, whatever abilities, whatever possessions I have, you can't use those for me. I have to do that. I can't use yours for you. You have to do that. We all have to bear our own load in in that regard. And so we're to be good stewards. But this fellow in this parable was not a good steward. He was not properly using his his, uh, master's. Uh, possessions. In fact, he was squandering those possessions, and the master finds out about it, and so he calls him in and says, what, what is this you're doing here? Uh, you can no longer uh, be the manager of my house. So immediately, this fellow starts thinking, he says, well, I'm not strong enough to dig, it says. I guess he's talking about maybe uh, farming, that kind of thing. So I'm not strong enough to do that, and, and I'm ashamed to go out and, and beg for a living. What What can I do? So the wheels start turning, right? He says, I know what I'll do. And so he calls in everybody that that owed the master something. And as I understand it, what he would do is uh, he would allow them to pay just a fraction of what they owed and then write it off as paid in, paid in full. And so he was really, what, what he was doing, he was making friends, right? He said what he wanted to do was... Uh, find some people that would welcome me into their homes when he lost his job. And so he's using his master's goods and master's possessions and money to buy friends is is what he's doing here. And so if you skip down to this Luke 16, verse eight, amazingly enough, it says, and his master praised the unrighteous manager. So he's been squandering his possessions And now he's giving away the master's possession, and yet the master praised him. Why did he praise this unjust, dishonest steward? And all this bad things and mismanagement he was doing, the master praised him. Why did he praise him? All right, he did do that. Any other thoughts? He, he goes on to say there in verse 8, um, he praised the unrighteous manager because he acted shrewdly. So the praise was for him, not, not because he did wrong, but because he used his head to provide for himself after he lost his job. And so then he goes on to say, For the sons of this age are more shrewd in relation to their own kind than the sons of light. What does that mean? So he's making an application now. He's praised this unjust, dishonest steward for being shrewd. And now he's going to make an application to us. What is that application? Don't be like that (laughs) guy. That's about as simple as you can say it is. Don't be like that Well. In a, in a way, in one sense, it's it's we ought to be like him, but not with. Yes, sir. Well, to... Go ahead. Exactly. So he's saying that just the people of the world are oftentimes uh, use a lot better judgment in the physical things of this life than I'm going to say Christians or disciples of Christ do in spiritual things. They put more time, more planning, more effort, more commitment, more work into obtaining the physical things than than sometimes Christians do in the spiritual. And you just think about that. Uh, reading this, and boy, I had to turn around and kind of go look in the mirror. I said, boy, you know, how much, how much effort am I putting into it? Uh, how much time, how much thought? Uh, how, how much am I engaged in the work in the kingdom? Or do I just come and sit on the pew and let everybody else do all the work? Or am I really a part of it? When I get up in the morning, what am I thinking about? Lord, thank you for another day. Help me to make this day something for good and not for evil. And, and how, how much am I engaged in the work? And look, how much effort did I put into making a physical living? And now how much effort am I putting into making a spiritual living, so to speak? If you understand what I mean? So see, there's the contrast. The, the steward was a bad steward, but he was shrewd in obtaining physical things. And he's saying we should be shrewd too. In that sense, we ought to be like the steward only in spiritual things. Not Don't be like him in the physical things, okay? That's, that's not what he's after. Now the next verse, to me, I had to really, it may be really plain to you, I had to really give this thing some thought. Verse 9, He says, And I say to you, make friends for yourselves by means of the wealth of unrighteousness, so that when it fails they will receive you into the eternal kingdom. What is he saying there? I think it's using sarcasm. Sarcasm? Okay. I hadn't thought about it like that. <laughs> okay. Uh, any, any other thoughts? Danny? I think thank you think well, you, help other, you, know, if you all right. That That was kind of my thought. Alan? I think the word unrighteous there kind of triggers us to think it's like sinful. I don't think that's the right word. I think it just means not righteous, as in not heavenly, not spiritual, just earthly. So, like the combo just made, use wealth on earth to help others build real friendships Mm -hmm. so that when the wealth does fail, those things will be eternal. That's that's my thought. I think you you two hit it right. Uh, was there somebody that I missed? Anybody else? Um, my mind went to Matthew chapter 25, Danny. You know, when you, there's a, the, the judgment scene. And Jesus said, uh, I was hungry and you fed me and thirsty and you gave me drink and so on. You remember all that as much as you did it, the least of these you've done it unto me. So in that sense, you're making friends, I'm using air quotes here, <laughs> with, uh, with others. And in so doing, what are you doing? You're laying up treasures in heaven, right? You're laying up treasure in heaven. And going, going back to Galatians chapter uh, 6, bear ye one another's burdens. What about when in, within the church? And uh, we're encouraging one another, and we consider one another to provoke to love and good deeds And and, and the shortest, easiest way to say it, we're helping each other to get to heaven. And so how shrewd are we in using our time and energy and talents and, yes, physical possessions. I think, as Alan was pointing, that's what he's talking about, the unrighteous wealth. That's just worldly physical possessions. He's nothing sinful about just having those. A lot of righteous men were wealthy, Uh, but it's how do you use them and again again, you get back to the parable the talents and those kinds of things so he seems to be saying to me that we need to be uh, more effort more time more planning more work in using the blessings that we have in spiritual ways and making friends of our brethren and other people in the world yes brian And we have to get away from the idea, okay, if, if I use my goods to help somebody else, then I've just lost that. You know, I could have used it for myself, but now it's just gone. No, you'll get a better reward from that than you ever would have done using it for yourself, right? So we need to think about that and, and about uh, those souls that you're talking about. Any other comment there? Uh, Dan? Dan? So it, it was more the the effort than the means. It's the, yes, the, right. The, the preparing for exactly. The work, I think. Right. Very good. Very good. Good thoughts. Anybody else? Okay. We get down to, to verse uh, thirteen. He talks about you cannot serve God and mammon. So you you use the mammon, your earthly wealth, for good, not for selfish purposes, and and so uh, you've you've got to get that mindset i'm going to use it for good even though in that sense you physically lost it maybe but it but you're laying up treasures in heaven remind me of matthew 6 verse 24 in the sermon on the mount you cannot serve god and mammon and he said that in the context of laying up treasures in heaven For he says where your treasure is what else is going to be there that's where your heart that's where your thoughts uh, your attention, your your energy is going towards that. Uh, it's an interesting passage in 1 Timothy chapter 6. And starting with verse 17, he's talking about rich people here. He says, instruct those who are rich in this present world uh, not to be conceited or fix their hope on the uncertain riches. So don't fix your hopes on those riches you've got in this world. But on God, there's where your hope should be who richly supplies us with all things to jo- to enjoy, instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous, to be ready to share. See, there's, there's how he's using his riches properly, right? And what's the result of that? Storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. So instead of using those things to, obtain, in a sense, physical life, a better physical life. You've laid up treasures in heaven and taken hold of what is eternal life instead. Uh, in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 9, there's, they were talking about taking up a collection for the needy saints in Jerusalem. Uh, verse Seven, let each one of you do just as he has proposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God gives, uh, loves a cheerful giver. and God is able to make all grace abound to you and, all, and uh, that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. So when we use them properly, he's saying God's going to provide an abundance for you to use when you use it right, that kind of thing. Any, any other comments on this? Okay, verse 14. <clears throat> now the Pharisees who were lovers of money were listening to all these things and were scoffing at him. And he said to them, uh, you are those who are justify yourselves in the sight of men, but God knows your hearts. I've, I've not been uh, moving my, uh, <laughs> forgetting everything here. Uh, So they're scoffing at Jesus. He said, you justify yourselves in the sight of men, but God knows your heart for that, uh, which is highly esteemed among men is detestable uh, in the sight of God. The law and the prophets have been proclaimed until John. And since then the go- the gospel of the kingdom been preached and everyone is forcing his way into it, but it's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one stroke or letter of the law to fail. So he's talking about, uh, these men, who the, these Pharisees, who outwardly to the general public looked to be the most pious, the most religious, the most godly people, but he said, uh, God knows your hearts. It reminds me of what he said about them in Matthew chapter 23, about verse 27 and 28. He compared them to whitewashed tombs. You know, you paint this tomb all white and pretty, pristine on the outside. But on the inside, it's full of dead men's bones. He said, "That's that's the way you are. You look pretty on the outside, but on the inside, you're you're really ugly." Um, and, and God knows the heart. So uh, verse sixteen was interesting. He talked about the uh, the the law being proclaimed until John, and then the gospel of the kingdom is preached. And everyone is forcing his way into it. How, how, how is that? What's he saying there? What's in the context? He have to see it in the context of what he's saying. And he says, uh, heaven and earth will pass away before one letter of the law is going to pass. The law is still what it's always been. And he talked about preaching the gospel of the kingdom and people are forcing their way into it. Any thoughts about what he means there? I think, isn't he talking about they're, they're trying to do the same as they did with the old law. You remember back in Jeremiah 5 when God said an appalling and a horrible thing has happened in the land? You remember what happened? He said, the prophets prophesy falsely, the priests rule on their own authority. And my people love it so. He said, you've been ignoring my law and you think I'm going to be with you anyway. I was thinking back about uh, they're doing the same thing in Matthew chapter 3 when John was baptizing. Remember the Pharisees and the Sadducees came to be baptized too? And he called them what? A brood of vipers. He says, what you need is the R word. What was that? To repent. That's what you need. Just coming and being baptized, immersed in water without repentance is worthless. And so it seems that they were coming and trying to, to reap the benefits of whatever you would get from baptism, but they weren't willing to repent. And it seems like that's what, to me, that's my thought of what he's saying here, trying to force their way. I want in the kingdom, but I'm going to get in my way instead of God's way is what they're trying to do. And of course, we know that won't work. <laughs> you can't get in the kingdom like that. And so, any other thoughts there? I don't want to... And so then he goes and, and, and he, he says something that seems to be completely uh, out, of, out of context. He just says, everyone who divorces a wife and marries another commits adultery, and he who marries one who is divorced from a husband commits adultery. Why would he throw that something about marriage and divorce in here? When he's been talking about other things, about how they were pretty on the outside, ugly on the inside, forcing their way into the kingdom.
1: There rabbis and that changed law to that Moses uh, allowed them to have, but Jesus said it was because of the hardness of your heart. God allowed that their hearts were still hard, and they were, as you said before, uh, trying to get into heaven their own way and interpreting the law in their own way, uh, mm-hmm. with all these six hundred years of, of oral uh, commentary uh, on things they knew
0: nothing about. All right, I think that's exact. So, so basically, what he's what he's saying here uh, is that I've. I, You've been ignoring God's law and trying to force your way in. And I'll, I'll give you an example, right? He says, here's, a, here's an example. <laughs> and he talks about God's law about marriage, divorce. And of course, as Bruce said, we, they, they had abused that like they had many other laws too. So uh, you're pretty on the outside, ugly on the inside. And here's an example of how you've been ignoring God's law. And so then he gets back to this thing. That, remember, they were scoffing about what Jesus was saying about using your earthly wealth. Okay, and uh, so now he gets back to physical wealth. Here's another lesson, of course. He tells the uh, well, I don't know if it's a parable or a story about uh, literal people here. There's a lot of discussion about that. If it's a parable, it's the only one I know of where a person is named in the parable, and it doesn't seem to me to fit sort of the definition of a parable. A parable usually is taking very common earthly things that happen every day and that everybody's familiar with and then use that to teach a spiritual lesson. But a lot of this about the right Lazarus and the rich man is about what happens in Hades and none of us are familiar with those things so it just doesn't seem to fit the parable me. But anyway, the lesson is the same uh, either way you look at it. So there was a certain rich man, verse 19 living in splendor every day. Then there was a poor man named Lazarus, laid at his gate covered with sores. And uh, it seems that he, he, was, he didn't want to take anything from the rich man. He, didn't want take any, he said, I'll just take what falls from your table so you won't be out anything. You won't, there's no sacrifice on your part at all. I'll just take what falls on the floor. That's all I want. And though it doesn't specifically say so, the implication seems to be that the rich man never, never gave Lazarus any thought. And he was laying right there at his gate. You know he had to see him. You know he had to, to know his circumstances and just never had the time, never made the effort to help this poor man in any way. In fact, it uh, says that the, uh, the dogs were coming and licking his sores. Uh, so it, it seemed like the, the dogs had more sympathy and more compassion for this poor Lazarus than the rich man had. Um, Verse 22. Now the poor man died, was carried away by the angels to the bosom of Abraham, and the rich man also died and, and was buried. Now you talk about stark contrasts, stark contrasts. Lazarus, the poor man, died, and what happened? The angels carried him to Abraham's bosom. Rich man died, he was buried. Uh, It makes me think about uh, Psalms 116 and verse 15. It says, precious in the sight of the Lord is is the death of his saints or his holy ones. Precious in this, You being a faithful child of God, when you leave this life and this earth, no matter how that might be, God will notice. If you're his child, he's not going to let you pass from this life without noticing. And he certainly noticed this poor man, Lazarus. So the rich man, uh, he was in agony and a flame, it says there in verse 24, and he wanted... Abraham to send Lazarus to dip your finger in some water and put it on my tongue and I'm in agony in this flame. And he says, well, remember now uh, back on earth you had all the good things and Lazarus had all the bad things and you didn't have time for him then. See? And now you're wanting somebody to take time to help you and you never took time to help the needy when you were here on this earth. But Regardless, there's a gulf between here and there, and we can't do it. You know, what you're asking, we cannot do right now. I'm, I suspect Lazarus would have done it if he could have, but he couldn't. And so then where does the rich man's thoughts go after that? Okay, I'm here in this agony. There's no help available. Where does his thoughts go then? His brothers. As you know I got these, what is it, five brothers back on earth, why don't you send Lazarus back and let Lazarus tell them what's happening here because I don't want them, I don't want my brothers here where I am. I don't want them in this agony. But he said, he said, no, if, if they won't listen to Moses and the prophets, they wouldn't listen to somebody coming back from the dead either. Now that seems like, boy, surely, surely they would if somebody came back from the dead. But, but Abraham said, no, they wouldn't. So we're going to leave that right there, but in a few minutes, we're going to see that proven to be true. The Bible proves that that is true. Even if somebody comes back from the dead, they won't listen to them if they won't listen to what God says in the Bible. We'll see that that is a true statement. Any other comments about Lazarus and the rich man? Okay, and, uh, John.
2: Yes. Oh, hey, sorry. Uh, this is, it's interesting to me, and I guess this is more of a comment than a question, because I don't know that we know the answer, but with uh, with this example that we have here, um, it's one of the few that we see what happens after we die. And then when you think about the the judgment day, it's like this, it seems like judgment has passed for this, this person, and you know, it may be just an example of what could happen, but uh, it makes me wonder: we die, we uh, we are judged, and then this either either this is heaven and hell, or this is something before.
0: It's 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 just interesting to me to see
2: that glimpse.
0: Yeah, that, it seems to you. I've always looked at it as it's a it's a a place the departed spirits go waiting before the judgment. And then, and then the final judgment is pronounced is as, as the way I see that. Was there somebody?
2: Uh, just going back to what was just said, I think it's teaching us about the Hadean realm where we go waiting judgment, but there appears to be a prejudgment, if you will. So there's a dividing place uh, between those who were Christians and those who are faithful to God and those who were not. Uh, Also, just going back to what you said about whether it's a parable or actual truth uh, or an actual situation, it would be a very unusual parable were it a parable. because as you pointed out, it's the only one and where names are named and they're names of actual Bible characters, not something imaginary or something that we use as a parallel and what is it teaching if if not if it's not teaching specifically what it says if it is a parable then what is the parallel that it's teaching
0: and there's a lot that the bible and god just doesn't tell us everything about uh, every little detail about when we leave this life but he tells us what we need to know and of course I was about to move on without even without saying this, but the, what, what was the, the object of this event that he's talking about? The object was to these Pharisees, you, you put your trust in money and you have no compassion. Here's what you can expect. You'd be a lot better off being a poor man laying out by the gate with a dog licking your sores and being a child of God than you would be wealthy in putting your trust in riches because what you have here on this earth is temporary and this is forever. I've made me think about the book of Ecclesiastes. Vanity of is all is vanity. And it lists all these things that are vanity, worthless, futile. And one of those was putting your trust in earthly wealth, wasn't it? But in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 58, it contrasts that. What's not vanity it says, therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, or as much as you know your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Put your trust in riches, that's vanity. You serve the Lord, that's not vanity. Sir.
1: I've always learned, going back to Chris's uh, point, there are two places, uh, there are two names for hell. There's Tartarus, which is the waiting place, and then there's Gehenna, which is the everlasting Torment, and many have likened that to uh, a crime here on earth. There may be a crime committed. We may have committed a crime. We're going to go to jail for a period of time, a waiting place, and our trial may not come for another uh, year or two years, but we're going to stay in that waiting place until judgment. And if we look at the entire context of Scripture, there is going to be a great day of judgment. That's going to come according to Revelation and Peter and, and other, other uh, writings uh, when, the, when the earth has been destroyed. And that's when all, all, good and bad, will bow their knee and proclaim Christ
0: uh, as the king. Confess him there. Yeah, you made me think about the difference between Gehenna. When Jesus talked about the hell, the place of eternal punishment, the Greek word was Gehenna. And then when he's talking about just the realm of the dead, it's it's Hades. And of course, the good and the bad are in Hades, right? It's the realm of the dead. Of course, this shows us there's two separate parts of Hades as well. Okay, so... These uh, these Pharisees that love money making fun of Jesus talking about properly using. it. He says, "Here's what you got to expect. You need to learn this lesson. Don't put your trust in riches." So then he turns his his uh, attention back to his disciples. In chapter 17, verse one, he talked he talks about three different issues. First is stumbling blocks. He said to his disciples, "It's inevitable that stumbling blocks come, but woe to him through whom they come. It'd be better to have a meal." stone hung around your neck and cast into the sea than to cause one of these little ones of mine to stumble. Make made me think about Romans <clears throat> chapter 14. There he's talking about the eating of meats that had been uh, offered to idols. And of course the, the mature Christian knows an idol is nothing. Meat is meat. You can go eat whichever meat you buy in the, in the marketplace. Just, just buy it and eat it and don't worry about it. But there could be a weak child of God, a weak Christian, who in his mind couldn't separate the idol from the meat. And so it would violate his conscience. And so if you eat that meat in front of him and cause him to violate his conscience, then he's sinned and you've become a stumbling block. But the the way he said that is, uh, he talks about uh, don't destroy with your food him for whom Christ died. And see, so that's what we have to have in our minds. Uh, I think First uh, Corinthians chapter 8 says a very very similar thing about uh, what you do in this life. Sometimes you have freedoms to do things that's not wrong in and of itself, but in doing so, you could cause to stumble that one for whom Christ died. And so when we look at our brethren, when we look out into the world, and we see people doing all kinds of evil things maybe, what, what are we seeing when we see that person? What we ought to be seeing is that soul for whom Christ died, see, and be doing whatever we can do to bring that person in to closer to Christ and not doing things that would make somebody stumble that already is a child of God. See that person as, as one for whom Christ died. Then he turns to uh, forgiveness. Be on your guard. If a brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. For if he sins against you seven times a day and returns to you seven times saying, I repent, forgive him. And the apostle says, increase our faith. <laughs> he said, Lord, and the way I understand that is, Lord, that's, that's hard. I'm going to have to increase my faith if I'm going to be able to seven times a day. Uh, but it, there are several things in this. If, if If a brother sins, he says, just leave him and let him sin and go on, right? No, he says, rebuke him. Right? He says, you don't. You don't just leave him in the sin. Remember, this is a soul for whom Christ died. A brother sins. You don't just leave him. Let him go. You 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 try to restore him. And if he repents, he requires repentance. Then you forgive him. Uh, in uh, 2 Thessalonians, verse chapter three, verse fourteen, he says, brethren, even if one is caught in any trespass, this is Galatians six and one. You who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, <clears throat> lest you also be tempted. So here's a brother overtaken in a fault. Who is it that's supposed to restore that brother? In Galatians 6.1. Even if a brother be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself. So who's supposed to restore that brother? It would be any one of us, right? You which are spiritual. Is it, is it always the preacher that's got to do it? Is it always the elder, the deacon that's got to do it? No, if you're spiritual you see a brother overtaken in a fault, restore that brother in the spirit and always in the spirit of gentleness, humility, and never uh, holier-than-thou kind of thing. Now, referred to 2 Thessalonians, if anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of that person, don't associate with him so that you will be put to shame, yet... Do not regard him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. So you still got to admonish, okay? Bring that brother back. But remember, he's your brother. He's a soul for whom Christ died. And always, 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 the object is to save and not destroy, okay? So forgive that brother. When he repents, you forgive him. It's, it's like wiping the slate clean. Then he talks about, here's, a, here's another man who has a, a slave, a servant, and the servant is out working in the fields all day long. And he comes in in the evening, and it's supper time, and he said, that slave doesn't just sit out and eat supper himself. What does he do first? He prepares, right, he serves his master, prepares the master's meal and then he's able to sit down and he says, and so you too, there, there's us. He's talking to us now, right? You too. When you do all things which are commanded to say, we are unworthy slaves. We've only done that which we ought to have done. So if we spend every minute and we use of our lives, we use every blessing we've got, the very best we can in God's service, and the judgment day comes, and we can stand before the Lord and say, Lord, I've earned it, you owe it to me, I won't have it. Can we do that? I'm just an unworthy servant. I'm just, I've just done what I'm supposed to do. I'm saved by grace. What I want on judgment day is, is mercy, not justice, right? Still, what, so there, there's never, we talked about this earlier, there's never, ever, ever a time in life of a Christian where we ought to be puffed up with pride, and uh, arrogant and that kind of thing, but a humble servant. When I've done everything I can, still I'm just an unworthy servant. So then we we uh, get to John chapter 11. We jump from Luke over to John. We're not going to have time to finish this, but you know how it went. Uh, here's, here's Lazarus. There's Mary and Martha and Lazarus live in Bethany. And uh, in the uh, Lazarus got sick in verse 5. This is John chapter 11, verse 5. It says, Jesus loved Mary and Martha, uh, her sister, and Lazarus. So these were friends that he had developed. And Jesus is still over in Perea. He's a two-day journey away. And Lazarus got sick, so they send a messenger over and tell Jesus, come quickly. Lazarus is sick. And Jesus stayed two more days. I thought he loved Lazarus. Why didn't he just leave right then and come right back and heal Lazarus? The Bible says he loved him and he stayed two more days knowing full well that Lazarus was going to die. And apparently he died about the time the messenger got to Jesus. It must have been just almost exactly when that messenger got there that Lazarus died. Jesus loved him. So why didn't he just go ahead and leave immediately and go back and heal Lazarus? All right, he's going to use this to uh, so that others may believe. is what it. And so we know how he waited two more days and it's a two-day journey to get back. So now that Lazarus has been dead for four days. And uh, this is that famous passage when you get back. Of course, everybody's in grief because Lazarus is dead. He's already buried in the tomb. And Jesus sees all the... the uh, sadness and the weeping and it just says jesus wept it touched it see there's there's the compassion that we see in our savior and so in verse uh 39 he had them remove the stone a lot could be we don't have time a lot could be said about that why didn't he just remove the stone himself but he had them remove the stone it's kind of like he's uh, offering his blood to save us but he says come unto me and I will give you rest. We have to come to him. There's a part that we have to do, right? And then Jesus has paid the price. So he had them roll away the stone. And, uh, and he says, Lazarus come forth in verse 43, and of course he raised him from the dead. Uh, and so what was the result of that in the people? There in verse 45, and there were many Jews who came to Mary and saw what he had done and believed in him, but some of them went to the Pharisees and told them the things that Jesus has done, and what did they do when these Pharisees learned of it? Did they rejoice and believe in Jesus? No. <laughs> know what it says in verse 53, so that from that day they planned together to kill him. It just increased their desire to kill Jesus. And we'll see in chapter 12 and verse 10, not only did they want to kill Jesus, they wanted to kill somebody else, Lazarus. And in thinking about it, it reminded me of Zechariah 7, verses 9 through 12. And I keep forgetting to, uh, to move this. Uh, that uh, he was talking about the Israelites before the Babylonian captivity. And he said their hearts uh, were like flint. Now flint is a really hard stone. And so they made their heart, and and so the the law had no effect on them. God's commandments, the prophets had no effect because their hearts were like stone. And that's the way these Pharisees were. It didn't matter what miracle Jesus did. It didn't matter what compassion that he showed. None of that mattered. It was their wealth and their position in society that mattered to them, and their, their hearts was like stone, and it couldn't penetrate. We're going to have to stop there. Almost got through, but not quite. (laughs) So we'll pick up uh, back in Luke chapter 17 and verse 11 about healing the ten lepers next week. said a little bit about gratitude and then get into uh, lesson number three.